Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest independent startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe in partnership with Google for Startups. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high-growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There's no time to wait, so let's begin. Hey all, Chris Jonu, your buddy back behind the mic. This is the Start Growing Global Podcast, and I'm incredibly proud to bring you this episode today, tonight, wherever you may be, with our good friend, Ruth Hendricks, co-founder of Startup Bootcamp, one of the world's leading accelerator programs, truly global. Did something like 20 programs last year alone around the world. They also have an amazing business called Interleaps, helping corporate innovate, corporates innovate from within using lean methodologies and run programs for major multinationals, including Nestle and Sahi and Rabobank. But what's truly fascinating about Rude to me is his background, starting with the fact that he was one of the original pirate DJs on Radio Caroline, where they used to have to go out to international waters to avoid breaking the law, getting arrested so they could broadcast back the tracks to the kids. Isn't that great? Give the kids what they, what they wanted. Probably driving their parents nuts, but I love it. So one of the original pirate DJs then went on to found Sky Radio, run NBC Europe, and then Endemol, which had a $5.5 billion euro exit. So uh, you, uh, he's not short of a story, okay? And uh, we've got a few out of him tonight. Enjoy. Good to, good to see you, man. Good to, hit, good to have you in here. Likewise, Chris. Good to see you again. Now, look, you know, we've had a chat before and we managed to, you know, lucky enough to get you out to, to the APAC conference uh, last year. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit here. Um, I'm also um, extremely excited to hear the state of tech um, that you're going to be given, um, presenting this year at Startup Grown APAC. We've got you back again. I think the timing, right. the timing seems to keep working in my favor. I am really looking forward to that, Chris. It's always a pleasure to visit Australia and uh, Melbourne in, uh, in particular, and I'm really looking forward to the conference as well. Very good, very good. So can you just like, while we're on that bit, right, if, if, if I got it right, um, given, you know, how, just how large um, Startup Bootcamp is now, um, you've just got that much data and you just put together a report, a report with the PwC, if I'm correct. Yes, the state of tech is our yearly uh, report and our yearly forecast on the state of the tech industry. So we always uh, have uh, three predictions of where the industry will be heading. Uh, we always take a look at, um, at what it means for the planet, what it means on a, on, a, on a country and on a city level and on a people level and then finally on a cell level. So we really take a macro view and we zoom in and we zoom in we zoom in and this year's this year's version we try to uh, avoid uh, the figures but really look at the impact that uh, tech has on our personal lives fantastic and and we're going to be you know we're lucky enough to be one of the first that's going to be hearing that um, um absolutely absolutely uh, i've done the presentation last week as kind of a tryout an mvp in amsterdam and uh, the first people to see the full presentation will be you guys. That's what we love to hear, man. That's what we love to hear. Now, um, going back, right, um, and, I, you, know, I, you know, I can't skip this because it's just too, 
too damn interesting. Um, you were one of the original pirate DJs, is that right? I was, yeah. I was uh, broadcasting from uh, the Mi Amigo, a radio ship uh, anchored in uh, the Thames Estuary, 15 miles off the British coast. And I was uh, one of the DJs on board Radio Caroline, which is a legendary pirate radio station. It is. It's, it's, it's from the, the British film. We've got that right? Yeah, there was this film, The Boat That Rocked, which was fully... Uh, well, uh, it's, it's basically the Caroline story, and many of the things happening in that movie have actually been part of myself. Uh, although it was uh, slightly romanticized, because I can assure you that being on the high seas, uh, me being a heterosexual with, uh, with eight other men for three months, uh, and, and during those months, uh, and during high, uh, high, enormous storms, hurricanes, uh, and sometimes having very little food to eat and very little water to drink uh, wasn't the most uh, comfortable situations. I, I, I can imagine. So we, we, were you the guy that was the, you know, the ladies' man in the movie? Or were you, who was it? Who was, who was most like your character there? You should ask my wife. But um, <laughs> there is a guy in that movie who, who really looks very much like me, which is a coincidence because the movie... Uh, shows the situation in the mid-1960s when you could still easily just hop on a boat and, and sail towards uh, the radio ship in international waters. When I was on board that ship, it was illegal to uh, provide us with uh, any supplies. Mm -hmm. So uh, in my days, it was slightly uh, more difficult to, uh, to be on board than in those days. But uh, there are quite a, a number of people who, uh, who look very familiar to me, yes. And... and and can you just explain um, for the for anyone that doesn't know, you know, why you were doing that and kind of why it's such a, I guess, an important time in history? Yeah, well, you know, in the in the sixties and in the seventies, uh, in most uh, European countries, uh, commercial radio was just not allowed, and nor was commercial TV. The UK was uh, was kind of an exception, but uh, the British pirates went off the air in nineteen sixty seven and. Uh, in the Netherlands, it would take until uh, the early 90s until commercial radio uh, would be legalized. And uh, so the only way for us to, to broadcast was either to be on a land-based pirate station. I've been on 18 of those. Uh, but of course, we were uh, uh, time and time again and again. Uh, we were, I won't call it harassed, but we, 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 we were chased by the police and by... Uh, other authorities uh, and so the only way to really broadcast uh, for years and years without the government uh, being able to 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 interrupt us was to be on the high seas outside uh, territorial waters so there we were on a, on a ship uh, 48 meters uh, uh, in length with a mast of almost 60 meters uh, high uh, beaming into the Netherlands Belgium France Germany and obviously into the UK as well and we had two very powerful 50 kilowatts. Uh, we had with three very powerful uh, transmitters on board, one 50k transmitter beaming into um, continental Europe, and then two 10 kilowatt transmitters beaming into, into the UK. So we were broadcasting simultaneously in English as well as in, in Dutch. And it was an important period in my life. You know, uh, in those uh, days, there was still, um, it was, you were still obliged to either go into the army when you were young and, and uh, I managed to, uh, 
to, to, to stay out of the army. But, you know, when you're 18 years of age, it's time to leave your parents home and to become slightly uh, uh, more independent. So where one goes into the army, I went <laughs> on board a radio ship and I learned to read the news and to, uh, and to be a morning DJ. Fantastic, fantastic. And uh, going back, maybe the only thing that was missing was the casino? Uh, yeah, yeah. There was no, no. We we had no casino on board in those days. But I mean, th the idea to do a, a pirate radio station, I think, came from casinos that were moored off the uh, U.S. coast. Uh, in, in well, basically about a hundred years ago, uh, and then pirate radio came up in the late fifties, early sixties. And it lasted all the way until the early 90s. And you know, Radio Caroline is still on the air. You can still hear the station uh, on DAB, Digital Audio, in, in the UK. And you can listen to it online as well at, uh, at radiocaroline.co.uk. I did not know that. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, before I kind of, you know, um, go through your career uh, and and then through to the Startup Bootcamp story, um, do you think there has to be some, you know, like a healthy, healthy dose of, um, I guess, rebelliousness in, in, in entrepreneurs to succeed? The debt certainly seems to be a, um, a common thread with some of the, uh, some of the greats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look at, uh, at, uh, at Steve Jobs and the way he cherished uh, and, and uh, applauded rebels, I, you know, Cheers to the crazy ones, I think, is, is what he said. Yeah, you have to be a bit of a rebellion. You have to be creative. You have to be able to find your way around. I, you know, I would never advise any entrepreneur to break the law. But every now and then you have to stretch it probably a little to, to make certain that things happen. Because, you know, I was on board Radio Caroline and then I worked in a, on, a fish, in a fish, on official uh, Dutch radio and TV, public TV, for a long time. And then I found a loophole in European legislation which uh, allowed us to beam commercial TV, satellite TV, into the Netherlands from Luxembourg. So I launched uh, first the first two uh, commercial radio stations uh, in the Netherlands and then I launched, uh, I was part of the team that launched uh, the first two commercial TV stations. And uh, they were fully legal, uh, but finding that loophole required a bit of creativity and stretching it to the max and that's what we did so so please just uh, elaborate elaborate on that a little bit because i know this you know um well our, our let, let me, got you into media the media business i suppose yeah uh, so i'm I, the only mind you i mean it's it sounds like a very romantic story to be a pirate dj but i can assure you i'd rather have been uh djing legally on land if I would have had uh, the chance to, uh, to to do that, but it was just impossible to break into uh, legal public radio in those days. There was one station broadcasting pop music, and there were only a limited number of spots for DJs, so it was impossible to do. So in the end, I I found my way into public radio, but it was still very frustrating because there were so many limitations on what you could say and what you could do and what you could broadcast. And then European legislation was introduced, which basically said that if you produce, if, if a product is legal in one European country, you should be able to use it and buy it in any other European country as well. So then I thought, well, if commercial radio and TV are legal in countries like Luxembourg, then 
we should be able to listen to those stations in the Netherlands as well. Uh, so why don't we start a station broadcasting in Dutch in Luxembourg, all legal, and listen to it in, um, in, uh, in, in, in the Netherlands? And obviously, I mean, the Dutch government wasn't very happy with that. Uh, and they tried to uh, take us off the air and we had to win five, six court cases. But in the end, we won uh, every court case. And, and the Dutch government just had to accept that a Luxembourgish station broadcasting in Dutch uh, was legal and that they couldn't do anything about it. And very soon afterwards, they uh, introduced new legislation which uh, made it uh, legal for anybody to start a commercial radio or TV station in the Netherlands, obviously depending on uh, the frequencies that you, uh, that you required. So that was a great victory. Well, this, it, this sounds like um, something that would require still a bunch of powerful friends to kind of get this thing off the ground. How did, how did, it, all, how did it all come together? Just well, to be very honest, I didn't have any powerful friends. Uh, I, I, I wrote a business plan. In those days, we didn't uh, have the business model canvas yet. And uh, I spent nine months writing a business plan for this commercial TV station. And it required an investment of something like, I'll do this in Australian dollars, something like 100 million Australian dollars. We're talking 1989 here. Wow. And, uh, you know, there are 50 ways. Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. I, was, I was in my 20s. And, you know, there are 50 ways to leave your lover and the 50 ways to say no to a sound business proposal. Yeah. And uh, everybody, I knocked on every door and everybody said, no, this is illegal. It's not going to work. Why would people watch daily game shows? Uh, they've had enough entertainment TV already. So I just pushed on through. And at a certain moment, there was a guy at Philips uh, Electronics who said, listen, if, if, if we become a shareholder, um, would you be willing to acquire anything that has a court attached to it and that we produce from Philips? And I said, yes. And he said, well, in that case, we, we would like to become a shareholder. I said, okay, how much, how big a percentage of the shares are you going to acquire? He said, well, I'd love to have 2%. So that left me with 98% uh, of the shares available. And then I went to RTL, the, uh, the, the largest commercial TV group in, in, in Europe in those days, which was Luxembourgish. And I said, listen, uh, I'm here uh, also on behalf of Philips Electronics, <laughs> and we're about to start a commercial TV station, would you like to join? And they said, well, that's, that's interesting, but if we join, we would like to have 51%. So then I could, could go back to the banks and say, listen, so we got Philips, we got RTL from Luxembourg, we already, they already have over half of all the shares, would you be interested? And that's how I bluffed my way through. So you're, you're like, you know, in, in, in Greece, you got these, this, this habit of uh, spinning plates. Huh? <laughs> yes. They have to run from one plate to the other keep, to keep them all spinning. And uh, that's, that's how, we, how we got those first investors on board. So you say to investor A, hey, guy B is almost there. And to guy B, you say, hey, investor A is almost there. And, you know, and then fake it until you make it. And in the end, we, we got the shareholders together. And uh, nobody would expect us to launch that station. And when we launched, the public broadcaster said, ah, no one is going to, going to watch it. But within three months, we were the number one rated TV station in the country. And, and the station has ever, has always been the number one station ever since then. And it's uh, almost, uh, well, this year, it, it, it was uh, 30 years ago since we launched. So uh, I think it was pretty good. Fantastic. And where, where does, uh, was it 
Rupert Murdoch next, or was it? Um, I'm trying to think about uh, Jack Walsh. Is that right? So it was like, well, well, I, I we launched those stations. I became the first program director in the country, and and uh, I bought shows like The Price Is Right and The Wheel of Fortune and and, and, and things like that. And then I was approached indeed by uh, by uh, Patrick Cox, who was uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, uh, ambassador, if I may put it that way, in, in the UK. And he said, "Listen, um, would you like to move over to London and uh, and run uh, NBC Super Channel, which was, let's say, the European uh, equivalent of NBC in in, in the US?" And I, I, I tried to launch that uh, pan-European station, uh, and I, I succeeded doing that. But it was very hard to get it viable commercially because pan-European advertising is pretty complicated with all those nationalities and languages, etc. So then uh, they, they, we decided to uh, change it into CNBC Europe. And uh, I had the great pleasure because in those days, uh, NBC was part of uh, General Electric, which at that moment was the most valuable company in the world, to, uh, to work with Jack Welch, who was the CEO of, of, of GE in those days. I had the privilege of uh, meeting him about six, seven times a year for three years in a row, which is absolutely fantastic and inspiring. And was, was and was that? Um, I feel like that's just such a, such a leap in, in 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 the span of a few years. You know, um, I guess you know you founders sometimes talk about imposter syndrome. Was it? Was there a bit of that going on with just the, you know, the the leveling of the leveling up you had to do each time very very well, quickly. Uh I learned a lot uh, at at RTL at uh, when we launched those two uh, TV stations. I always really love what I'm doing. So you know, in the past, I, I when I used to travel to New York, I'd arrive in Manhattan. I would drive to the Strand Bookstore on 13th and Broadway. I would go to the radio and TV section, just buy every secondhand book I could buy for a few dollars, then go back to my hotel room and just read and try and find as many ideas that I could implement in, in, the, in, in Europe as well. So uh, I, I knew quite a bit about American TV and, and about commercial TV when I was approached by, uh, by, uh, by GE. And um, that, was, that was great. And, but, you know, imagine that you're playing at, uh, at a Melbourne a professional football club and you, you, know, you, 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 you know you're talented and you want to see if, if you can play... Uh, let's say in the Premier Division in, in 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 the UK, and you do pretty well over there as well. And then you wonder, hey, should could I play in a team that that wants to win the Champions League? So I I, I went up pretty fast, and I, I I the one thing I learned, and and I'm I'm being slightly arrogant here at NBC, was that I was able to play in the Champions League of commercial television, and that was enough because. After being there for three years, my, my family uh, wanted to move back to the Netherlands. And so I, I, I moved back and then I joined uh, two guys, John de Mol and Joop van der Ende, who owned a company called Ende Mol Entertainment. And they are the inventors uh, of Big Brother and uh, Stars in Their Eyes. You may know these, these TV programs. And so I became third in command at, at their company. We took it public uh, um, for, uh, I think, about, 700 billion or something and then seven, seven years later we took it we, we sold it took it off the market uh, sold it to telefonica for 5.7 billion euros we're talking 2001 now and that was a great adventure as well so and then i 
at the age of 42 realized that I had lost contact with most of my family, that I had lost almost all my friends, that my marriage was um, a disaster and that I'd become very wealthy and very lonely. And uh, I retired uh, one day to the other, uh, met my present wife, and she said to me, listen, Ruth, uh, it's after two years of, of just having a few supervisory board positions, she said, listen, it's time for you to, uh, to go back to work because you're a man of the future and you're only talking about the past. And I said, well, I have a hard time uh, controlling myself because when I work, I have the tendency to just work 24 uh, seven if possible. And she said, well, you know, I've been with McKinsey for a while. I think I can control a guy like you. And she succeeded and we've been together for 16 years. And uh, so then I did some other broadcasting activities at the age of 50. Uh, She said, listen, uh, it's time to do something else because you're 50 now. You got the energy, you got the funds uh, and, and the means available to do something else. So, if you ever want to do something else, it's now. And that's how uh, a year later, together with my former second-in-command at the TV production company I just mentioned, and the mall, uh, I, Patrick De Zeeuw, I launched, uh, we launched uh, Started Bootcamp, which is now in something like 15, 16 countries. And uh, I think we're the number four uh, startup accelerator in the world. Uh, after Techstars, 500 startups, maybe plug and play. And and then, of course, there's Y Combinator, which is in a league of its own. Uh, But uh, let's say I I think that from the non-US accelerators, we are by far the largest. And Startup Bootcamp is doing well. And then two years later, we noticed that there was a huge need for um, corporate uh, innovation as well. So we took the lessons from Startup Bootcamp and... We, uh, we took the clients we already had that started bootcamp and we moved into corporate innovation and launched a second label called uh, InnoLeaps. And InnoLeaps is, um, is um, at this moment even more successful than started bootcamp. It's growing tremendously well. So we help companies like uh, Asahi, uh, Nestle, Unilever, uh, Friesland Campina, Record Bank, but also all major big banks to innovate like a startup. And, and, to be very uh, frank and honest, I've uh, helped uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of startups to grow. Uh, but now helping a company like Nestle to survive disruption, intellectually, for me, is more challenging than, uh, than helping another startup. I love startups, no doubt about that. But uh, helping uh, corporates survive, uh, large enterprises, is uh, very fascinating as well. Can we can we unpack that for a little bit? Because I did definitely, you know, want to get on the inner leap stuff. Yeah. Not to brush past uh, startup yeah. boot camp. I mean, first of all, just for anyone that's not, sh- you know, unsure about the scale of startup boot camp, to your point, it is truly, truly global. Um, yeah. And, uh, but to, to, to dig a little deeper with the inner leap stuff and, you know, I was having this conversation with our friends from um, Vodafone, uh, who's... Uh, yeah. Also Luxembourg, um, and um, the what seems to be a common thread is kind of this, um, I guess, inevitable pushback or this. Um, um, I would say that everyone's so, so um, rainbows and skittles, I suppose, suppose at the beginning, um, and then there's this kind of, um, I guess, people set set in their ways or this 
it's almost like a transformation that needs to take place if i'm right yes mm -hmm. yeah correct absolutely yeah you're now you're now talking about the the, the corporate enterprise so. yes absolutely yeah. yeah so and um so how do you kind of navigate um i mean it, it could be potentially tens of you know you know a hundred years of culture that you're trying to unravel and then kind of inject with this you know startup thinking what is what are some of the big challenges and how well, it only it, on, it only works if you start at the top. So if we don't get access to the CEO of a company, we politely refuse to work for that company, because we know that if you start accelerating lower in in, uh, in the lower ranks of the organization and you you become successful, that you will have to face opposition from, let's say, the naysayers, if I may put it that way, like uh, procurement, compliance, HR, legal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in order to get them on board, you need the full support from the uh, executive board, from all the, the top executives. So usually we start with a one-day session where we uh, tell and, and train the executive board, and sometimes even non-executives as well, uh, about uh, lean startup methodology, innovation accounting, and things like that. And once we've told them and convinced them that not taking any risk is much riskier than taking a calculated risk. Then we start working on those uh, other departments like uh, uh, compliance, HR, uh, legal, etc. And and we usually uh, take a week to train them. And after that's been done, then we start working on concrete uh, on, on, on uh, projects. And that usually works very, very well. If you do it the other way around, it's definitely not, not going to work. So you need, you need a, if I may put it very bluntly here, Chris, you need a shit umbrella. You need someone in the organization way, very high up who protects you when, let's say, the corp corporate bureaucracy uh, grabs you and tries to kill you. Yeah, which, which tends, tends to happen sometimes with uh, startups that um, um, go to work for corporates, right? Yeah, well, you know, startups and corporates, I mean, even if they come from the same country and they speak the same language, they still don't understand each other. And startups uh, just can't understand why corporates uh, need so much time. Uh, and I always tell them, you know, wait until you get a thousand employees, then I want to see how fast uh, you can still move. Yeah. But corporates at the same time tend to think that if you're in a company with three employees, that you uh, that they should be able to do IFRS accounting, which is uh, horrendous uh, for a startup, of course. So there are two different worlds, and 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 we very deliberately positioned ourselves uh, as kind of the center of an ecosystem. So we speak both the corporate language as well as the language from startups, and it's a great position to be uh, to be in between. And what what are these? I'm mindful of your time. I'll I'll, I'll be wrapping it up soon here. But how do you? Um, what kind of team do you put together on the inside once it's kind of you know got the tick from the the executive board there um who, who's on board with this program and usually what usually what we do is is that we 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 very carefully select two to three people from within the organization of our clients we ask them to do psychological tests so uh, and obviously we look at their skills but their their psychological profile is very important because we can't say that if you have a certain profile that your venture will become a success but we know for certain that if you don't have a certain 
a few psychological elements that it's never going to be a success. So we, we try and find within the organization some very, very driven people, but also someone who is structured because obviously you need uh, corporate reporting as well. And then we add uh, some of our own uh, uh, people to, to the corporate team. And together, when you have a group of, let's say, six, seven people, you start building uh, new projects, new ventures, etc. And And the first thing we do is to validate the idea, because sometimes uh, people uh, are in love with their solution, but they should be in love with the problem. You know, if you, if you think, my, I have a solution for a fantastic a huge problem and and then it comes out that the problem just doesn't exist then your solution is uh, is uh, worthless so we always start to validate the idea first who's your customer what's his problem and then we take it from there absolutely so we, how how can people find you Ruth? I'm, I'm i'm mindful of your time here mate and um i'm very happy to continue the conversation when you when well, well first people can can always connect uh, try to connect with me through Ruth. R-U-U-D at InnoLeaps.com. Uh, that's the easiest one. Uh, and secondly, they can always uh, uh, try and connect with me through LinkedIn. But please describe why you want to link with me because uh, I get so many uh, LinkedIn requests every day that I, I can't say accept them all. I, I try to accept only people that I really, really know. Um, so, uh, that's, that's the easiest way. And, and obviously, uh, Chris, when I'm in Melbourne, uh, I'll be at the Starter Bootcamp office. I'll be at, uh, the, the conference, uh, and I, I'm really looking forward to meet people either before or after my speech. Thank you very much, Rude. Well, this one is for the, actually for the, uh, the global startup grind podcast. So we're going to put you here. Okay. Even better, even better, even better. Look forward so to looking up. forward to, uh, to connect with anybody and, uh, and to innovate together. Thank you very much, Rude. Talk soon, mate. It's my pleasure, eh? Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at an event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling. Keep hustling.